Go ahead. I usually butcher everything, but whatever. Um, so the line that he uses in the beginning to make his point that commentary shouldn't like get like drawn out is he says that if the mm-hmm. truth is like a point, right? And like the and he like therefore equates the like commentaries that like they talk a lot or they give long commentaries as circles around the, the dots. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. right. So he's He's trying to get to a point. He's trying to say that truth is usually something that would be like a point versus a drawn-out idea. What does that mean? What, like, what is he trying to say? Well, it says, Le'olam yolamed adam letalmidav derech ktsara, right? Okay. It's the same idea. If an idea is clear, then it should be able to be summarized in... It should be a cl- an idea that can be expressed in succinct language. But what about something abstract? A truth that's abstract? Even a truth that's abstract. Most writing is descriptive, meaning it gets into lengthy description. That a, What he's talking about is a long description is usually a cover for lack of clarity about the fundamental idea. So therefore you have to go on and on. So it's like, V'kol ksil, v'rov dvarim. Right? And then he talks, 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 talks. He's rambling on because he doesn't have a clear idea and a clear message that he can express. It doesn't mean quantitatively. What the, what the Ibn Ezra is talking about is not quantitative because he himself sometimes is rather loquacious in his, you know, in his writing, right? Ironically, the best example is <clears throat> that when it's in that very pasuk, the kol ksil berov dvarim, uh, what's the, what's the pasuk? Um, it's in uh, it's in Kohelet. I don't want to butcher the pasuk itself. The Berovinyan. What is it? Where he says that that's where he criticizes Kalir. Uh, that says a very famous Ibn Ezra, where he criticizes Rabbi Elazar Kalir for his bad piyutim. And how he writes goes on and on and on, and his dikduk is not correct, and his you know uh, no it's it's um, where is that pasuk? Cool. Were we just talking about a very long Ibn Ezra? Yeah, he does write very long. So that's what I'm saying. Length doesn't mean. Um, Length doesn't mean uh, using a lot. Of uh, a lot of, it doesn't mean quantitative. What he means is not focused on the point, not expressing a clear message. Okay, rambling on means there's no unifying message. Sometimes more words are necessary to get to an idea to expre- to to convey an idea. Sometimes less words. A chacham won't use more words than are necessary to convey the idea. That's what it means. You're supposed to teach derk tzaram. Means you're supposed to teach. A, uh, uh, you're supposed to teach in a way that minimizes the uh, filler and maximizes highlighting the idea. Now, sometimes you need more words than other times to make a certain point, and that's the necessity of the idea that is demanding the additional words. But there are other times that the the addition of words is a distraction from the fact that you don't really have a clear idea. So therefore you're rambling on in order to cover up for the fact that either you haven't reached clarity in your understanding 
or whatever the case may be. So it's not really a quantitative statement, it's a qualitative statement. You can have rambling commentaries that just go off on all kinds of different tangents, much like our conversations occasionally do, and, uh, and don't have a core uh, ideational nucleus, basically. That's what he's saying. There's no clear idea of it, as opposed to Ibn Ezra has a clear idea. Like he will say to you, I gave this example in the Chabura Shi'ur. He says, he says, uh, uh, you know, the Yosef story, the difference between Yosef and Yehuda. It doesn't like one sentence, you know. Yehuda fell into the trap of uh, Tamar because his Yetzirah got the best of him. And he went after the sexual uh, gratification. Yosef withstood, even though he was a teenager with probably, you know, hormones and all that and being, you know, away from home and all these things. He withstood the temptation of Potiphar's wife. And that's the difference. And that's why Yosef was, you know, Alaligdula early, you know, so early and Yehuda did it. That's what he said. That's an idea. Now you take that idea and the whole story opens up before you in light of that idea. That's all he needed to say to guide you towards the uh, correct idea. You have the the core principle, right? He could go on and on and on talking about all kinds of different details. But when you go on and on and on talking about different details, like let's say a novel goes on with a lot of description because it's creating a concrete image. It's not teaching you an idea. See? Uh, when you're creating concrete imagery, so like in drashot, let's say, or in works even on the Torah that are more like inspirational, they give all kinds of stories and all kinds of mishalim, all kinds of different descriptive, there's a lot more description and a lot less um, concept. So he's saying the opposite. If you have an idea that's crystal clear in, in, in succinct, whatever language is necessary for conveying it, Right? Um, well, it's it's uh, I just remember the pasuk, right? That's what it is. I think that's the pasuk. What is the idea? The chalom also is imagery. It's imagery, so it has rovinyan. It has all kinds of different associations. It doesn't have a clear principle discernible principle, message, right? Same thing with the Kol Tzil. He says all kinds of shtuyot. Talks about, oh my God, you're not going to believe what happened last week. You're not going to believe what I saw this. And I saw he just describes things, but he doesn't have an idea to teach you. Whereas a person has an idea to teach you, he can say it in one minute. Right? There's a, there's a story about, a, I remember there was a story that uh, somebody told about a rabbi who said, when I'm unprepared, I speak more than when I'm prepared. Right? Because when you're unprepared, you're just rambling and trying to reach in the darkness for something. You don't know. You're just you're throwing all kinds of things out there and seeing what sticks. You know, when you have a clear idea, it'll take you two minutes. You you state the idea, you state the concept, you're done. That's the gift of clarity, right? So I think that's what he means. He doesn't mean a quantitative idea because, of course, that that's the irony on that pasuk, which I can't find right now, but I know what's in here. Um, uh, on uh, of course they, even Ezra is taking the liberty of referring to uh, Rabbi Elazar Akadir as Aksil because he's saying that he has Rov Dvarim and he has no uh, he has no handle what he's doing and then he goes on all the reasons why the Piyutim of Kalir are bad like he has like a whole essay on why his Piyutim are bad and what's wrong with them and why the, you see that the Chachamim were not mitakent filot with all kinds of weird imagery and made up grammatical constructs that you need to interpret and all kinds of cryptic allusions to Midrashim. That's not how the Chachamim made tefillah. They said, Melech, Ozer, Moshe, Moshe, that's it. They used regular language and spoke straightforward. 
They didn't have any of this stuff. And so, of course, he goes on and on and on talking about that. So people will laugh and say, on a pasuk that says, and you're criticizing somebody about it, you are rambling on and on and on and on. Right? But what's the answer? He's saying the words necessary. You see that the Ibn Ezra is somebody who's very conservative about the amount of words that he uses. He says the littlest possible. So when he says more, that means it was necessary. Right? A commentary that's a little less, it's a little more diffuse, is like the Abar Benet. He goes on and on and on and on. Now, there's a lot of worthwhile stuff. He's really worthwhile to read. But it's really, really, really long because he goes on all kinds of tangents and in all different kinds of directions. So he really is a very lengthy commentary. Malbim is long. Malbim is, I, I like certain things about the Malbim. I really like certain things about the Malbim. I like his attention to the nuances of language. Um, which, yeah, the synonyms and the distinguished, you know, distinguishing features of nuances that distinguish them. I think he's really interesting in that. And his, actually, his Hakdamat Sefer Iov is really, really good. It's very good. It's almost like, sounds like it's copied out of there, yeah, but, but, but not, not literally, meaning basically the Rambam is very cryptic in what he says in, in the Moran Bukhim about the, about the, about the Yov. The Ralbag expands on it a little bit more, but he doesn't 100% follow what the Rambam's line of thinking. The Malbim expands on the, basically is riffing off of the Rambam essentially, but he puts it in language that somebody can understand, the average person can understand. Yeah, I think it's very good. But the only problem with the Malbim is he didn't get what the Rambam's real idea was, what the solution of Yov was. He only understands and explains what the different players in the story of Eov hold in terms of their views of Hashkacha. But he doesn't really understand or doesn't agree with, I don't, I don't know, doesn't show a, uh, a loyalty to the Rambam's understanding of what the Satan is and the role that the Satan plays in the story because according to the Rambam, that's really the core thing. You know, that, 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 that Ra'ot come from the physicality. That they're, they're part of the nature of the fabric of physical existence, Ra'ot. And, uh, and that's what the Satan represents, basically. But anyway, that's, that's, but the Malbim, I like the Malbim, actually. He's very good, and sometimes I'll read him. And, and, and actually, in, in, in Vaikra, he has a, he structures his commentary in Vaikra as a commentary on the Sifra, which is very cool, I, which is very unique and cool. He's, he's, he's worth reading. It's a lot, there's a lot worth reading. A person shouldn't be like, you know. Yeah, it's also good. Yeah, the, you know who's good? Meshe Chochma. He's very good. Meshe Chochma. Was he Hasidish? Because he. Yeah, because he's like. Uh, because his ideas are very Maimadidian. Yeah, he wasn't. Okay. Oh, he was? Okay. He's very good, though. He's also very good. Yeah, there's a lot of them. He's very good. He has very good, very good stuff. You know, another, uh, another uh, unsung uh, hero is uh, Bechor Shor. He has very philosophical things. Even though he was like, a tel- he was like from the Rashi uh, school. But he has some very philosophical stuff that he brings that it's like surprising for like somebody from the French school of thought. There's a lot of great Mepharshim out there. Yeah. No reason to no reason to discriminate. Okay. Anyway, but no that I think that's what the Ibn Ezra is saying. 
When he talks about that's the idea. The idea is that description is a substitute for definition. So when a person's rambling on and on and on, it's because they don't have a clearly defined idea. They'll only use the amount of words that's necessary. Now, sometimes that might be more. Sometimes it might be less. But it's not going to be in excess of what the definition requires. That's all. Sorry that I took Does that make sense? No, no, that's a really good, that's a really good thing to, to be aware of. Okay. So, uh... When you can't catch yourself rambling, that means you don't really understand what you're saying. You really have clarity on what's... Unless, I, I, I find myself rambling like in this with my wife. It's probably because she's trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it going to work? And you don't know what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good, that's and probably true. Which uh, character do I have? Probably true. Uh, or as, as the uh, you know as, as as the joke goes, you know, if a man says something in the forest and there's no woman around to hear it, is he still wrong? Is he wrong? That's uh, <laughs> okay. So uh, what do we get up to? Oh, we're talking about the need. Okay. So if, we're to, if we learn the story as an allegory, so then the naming of the animals is talking about the exercise of the intellect before the body is introduced into the picture, which is represented by the relationship with Chava. And again, the Rambam, or whoever is learning it as an allegory, will point to the fact that uh, sexuality is obviously an aspect of the animal nature and it's an aspect of the physicality. So that ties in, that can tie in with the metaphor of Chava being the body and Adam being the soul. But even in the narrative, like we said yesterday, even if you learn it as about a human being who's coming to actualize their ability um, to understand the world, so the self-reflection is the beginning, meaning the idea that a human being, because he's made not only of a body but also of a mind, can't even have the same kind of a physical, uh, of, a, of a physical existence because it's going to be mixed in with his self-awareness and his psychological awareness. It's not going to be separate physical gratification. So therefore, like for instance, food. A dog will eat the same food its entire life. It'll just eat the same food every day. It doesn't say, wow, you know, it'd be nice if I could get some gourmet food or maybe some variety. It just eat whatever, right? Whereas a person psychologically has difficulty with eating same thing all the time. They will become bored because part of their eating is also psychological. It also, it has to, and there's even a chazal that says that what did Hashem say to Adam originally? Uh, you're going to eat from the uh, esev, you're going to eat the, 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 the right, you're going to eat from uh, the esev asadeh, from the grass. And the Midrash says, Adam said, really? You're going to lower me that much? A cow eats the grass. I'm going to eat the grass. Come on. You can't tell me the grass. Okay. Okay, like there's a, there's a sense of the human dignity. Like I am not just an animal. I can't eat grass. You know? So even though what's wrong with grass? It's uh, nutritious. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, with all the bugs in there, it's also protein. <laughs> The Elm Cast focuses a lot on the effect of the relationship between Adam and Chava on Adam developing a sense of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. He's saying when you look at another human being and they're both aware creatures, mm-hmm. then it introduces the concept of the other right. deeper self-awareness mm-hmm. from the fact to that distinguish yourself from the other yeah, person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting. Yeah. It's very deep concept. Yeah, that is. Do you think that 
whether it's modern or older commentaries that look at the opening chapters and look at Adam and Chava, the prototypical man and woman, and try to say that, oh, this is the way, this is a typical man trait because we can see it from Adam, and this is something that women need because we see it in Chava. Is that, it's definitely done. Yeah, it's definitely done. Yeah, and it also calls it Ha'adam, you know, like the man, like he's not just a person right. called Adam, but he is the embodiment of the species Adam. Does the, does the reading, does the more allegorical reading of the story identifying the characters not an actual person and woman, but more as, let's say you're saying, Harambam was saying, the soul and body the soul or whatever. Body, does it kind of negate that whole pursuit? I don't think so. I think the greatness of the Torah is that, like, what, the reason why I started out the whole exploration by doing the three readings is to show you that the beauty of the Torah and the genius of the Torah is shivim panim la Torah is a real thing. Meaning, you can read the story in those three different ways, and only one of them may be historically true, but each and every one of them can teach you ideas and you can approach the story from that angle and learn something true. And that's what's unique about the Torah, that you can read it in all three different ways and gain an insight from each of the angles. Like when you're talking about, let's say you can read the story like as about a body and soul being united in Adam and Chava, and it really has to just do with the, intro, the introduction, the, the, the fusion of mind and body, but you can also read it as Adam's awareness of his sexuality and of the unique humanness, even in his relationship to physical gratification, that's also true and real. So like you can read it from all these different angles and each one gives you an insight dependent on you know, which way you approach it. And that's why there's Shivim Panim Torah. that's the beauty of the Torah that you can learn it in all those different ways. I think that it's all true. Now, and they're not usually exclusive. In the realm of ideas, they're not usually exclusive. Just like in Midrash, Midrashim that are contradictory in, in terms of the historical assertions they're making, if you're taking them as an assertion about what happens, okay, they can't, then the contradiction between them would mean that one of them is true and one of them is false. But if you just say that what they're really doing is showing that the text can be read in different multiple ways and is actually revealing to you different ideas that all could be true, so then there's no reason to make a psak that this midrash is correct and this midrash is not correct. Unless you really don't think that it, unless you think like the Rambam says, occasionally somebody would say a midrash and it was not, uh, wasn't, you know, was an off-the-cuff midrash. And it wasn't really, you know, therefore if it doesn't really make sense and you don't see any wisdom in it, don't kill yourself over trying to decipher the Vidrash. So, but, but generally speaking, the idea that there's multiple lev- levels of meaning, like uh, everybody agrees, like Pardis or whatever, Pshat, Rebbe's Drash Sod is a real thing. There are different levels. So you could say that this is an example of that. When we look at it, you know, we look at different ways. So, um, okay. So what are we, what, okay, so we had the naming of the animals. We had Alken Yazov Isha Davivetimo, the idea that that Adam is a, uh, you know, that there's a, an idea of independence and seeking partnership and not simply physical gratification. So, busha is an awareness of something negative about the self. Right? That's what busha means. Now, you can have, um, there's a difference between like, Shame and embarrassment. Embarrassment is in front of somebody else, right? 
like Malbin Pnei Chavero Barabim. It's like, that's, that means the embarrassment. For, somebody else perceives the flaw in you or perceives the deficiency in you. But when you perceive it in yourself, it's called busha, right? So shame, we would use in English probably as opposed to embarrassment, right? So they were not ashamed, meaning they didn't see any contradiction between the physical, the physicalness or the animalness in their identity and the intellectuality or the spirituality or the soul that was a part of their identity. There was no contradiction between the two because they were, there was a shiluv, what we call it. They were integrated together in one harmonious organism. The body was going to serve the soul. The, the sexuality of man is, is subordinate to his humanness. It's not, a, it's not something that's pulling him away from his humanness and making him an animal. It's something that works in tandem with it. And that's why Adam discovered his own sexuality and discovered his need for a partner and put it into context and saw the role that reproduction played in nature in the abstract before he saw it in himself even. Right? What are we... Whenever it says... So, are we saying that they weren't even capable of that at this point? Some people make it out to be that they didn't have that capability before the sin of taking from their fruit, because everything we've said up until this point already shows an Adam who's perceptive of his surroundings and can contemplate the difference between him and the animals. There already seems to be that, meaning the way I'm reading it now is that it's not that he didn't have the intellectual capability to have shame, but that he didn't see anything shameful. There was nothing shameful about it. Nothing shameful about it. But not that... I don't think that it means his nature changed. I mean, that's like what the Ramban's reading of the, of the Chet uh, Etzadat is, that, that, that basically human beings didn't have the Yetzirah in them yet because it wasn't something that un- until that moment happened that they transgressed and then it became uh, a part of them and then it became, you know, then the conflict was internalized between following the will of God and following their instincts. But until that moment that they actually chose to follow their instincts, they didn't have within them this conflict. That's, you know, it was an external, it was an external thing. So uh, that's how the Ramban interprets it. But you don't necessarily have to go that far. You know, it's simply that there are two paths before a person. In normal upbringing, we're accustomed to following the instincts until they're frustrated when we're children. Right? But Adam obviously doesn't come on the scene as a child. He comes on the scene as a fully formed intellect who's reflecting on himself and his place in the universe. And he's making a philosophical decision about how to relate to the world, whether to, to, the, to relate to the world objectively as in terms of the tov that God, uh, you know, uh, that God manifests in the universe and trying to live in harmony with that and understand what his tov is supposed to be and pursue that based on God's design or is it his, he has the ability, he realized he has the ability to uh, establish his own concept of Tov and his own empire on earth and to deny or try to work around whatever God's design and concept of Tov would be for human civilization. So that, that conflict is a philosophical conflict. 
Meaning a person can have that conflict at a philosophical level. Say, well, I have the ability to reflect upon the objective reality, but I also have the ability to reflect upon my subjective fantasies, and perhaps I could make those fantasies become a reality if I pursue them and I use the ingenuity that God gave me to be able to do it, which is exactly what our culture does. So, you know, to varying degrees of success. So, you know, obviously, this, the cultures that go to the furthest level of disconnecting from objective reality collapse and fail. That's why generally you find decadence and self-indulgence and promiscuity and all of these other things associated with the eventual downfall of societies because they come, they lose any sense of, uh, of any objective order, any higher purpose. Uh, our society hasn't reached that level yet, but it America could be is, on the path. What? America is on the way. Pretty close. The problem with America is it has many Nevi'e Sheker that basically preach the philosophy of the Nachash, which is that we are Kelohim, we are, we are the one. There's no obje- Who are you to tell me what is good and bad? Who are you to tell me what is even true or false? Who are you even to tell me if I'm a man or woman? It's, who do you think you are? Who, how, could you, how dare you tell me that being morbidly obese is unhealthy? You're fat shaming me. Right? Anything. Literally any... It's almost becoming absurd. You can push the envelope only so far against objective reality in claiming that your subjective fantasy about what should be true is actually real. But they're trying as much as they can. What we're seeing as the biggest problem Mm. in society today is the exact, probably the number one lesson to be learned from Adam and Chava's story. Being the first story... It was always there, but it was suppressed. Well, like the overall, the overarching moral of the story of Adam and Chava, which is the first story in the Torah, is the biggest problem we're facing in society today. Isn't that, doesn't that like tell you that the Torah is like perfect? Doesn't that blow your mind? Torah? I think it's yeah, always you're been. saying it's the biggest problem we have today. What the biggest problem American society is facing today is the fact that there's a majority of the population that's, that's pulling against objective reality and trying to be like Elohim Yodetova. That's always been. It's always been, though. Like, really, every empire yeah, is based on the same principle that human beings are independent of the rest of creation. We have our own creation. We've created our own world. We exist in our own... And then you have this extreme weather, like hurricanes, like uh, volcanoes, like uh, whatever it is. That's oftentimes what reminds people, or pandemics, or whatever, that reminds people that there's actually an objective reality uh, that, we, that is not subject to our will. But it's, not a, it's something that we try to deny as long and as far as we possibly can. And society and civilization <laughs> attempts to barricade itself against the objective reality in order to secure its fantasy world as much as possible. Of course, they, they realize that some engagement with objective reality is helpful because it enables them to pursue their gratification and the building of their empires more efficiently. But you'll notice that what's interesting that's happening is that even in science now, political correctness is starting to creep in. And oh, well, you're not really allowed to ask that question. You're not really allowed to pursue that line of research. You're not really allowed to come to that conclusion because it's against what our society's beliefs are. 
Instead of saying, maybe your society's belief is wrong if it contradicts an objective scientific truth that's been discovered. So it's kind of like the same thing as Galileo versus the church. Where they're like, very nice that you came up with this whole weird idea that, you know, the earth revolves around the sun, but it's clearly wrong because our holy book says that it's not true. Or my, fit, my personal favorite, the imam, who said that it clearly any rational person, uh, that guy's the best, right? Clearly. And he does a demonstration with his cup, clearly. <laughs> if the earth were moving and I were on an airplane and China's moving away, I'll never get to China. So obviously, obviously the earth is stationary. He's like, it's common sense. Anybody could see that. Right, any rational person can see it. That's what he says. Something like that. Like, it's common sense, obviously. Right? So, like, that guy is an example of someone who takes his book, that he's taking it literally. Who knows what the book even meant, you know, in its context. And he's, he's, he's very attached to this idea that the world, the earth, is stationary. So, therefore, nothing's going to convince him otherwise. It's amazing how repetitive the human story is. Yeah. Just like the same. Everyone the same exact story. It's always, you can, read a, you can read something from 5,000 years ago, something from today, and you're talking about the same human nature. It hasn't changed, like, barely at all. Paul Johnson has a very good uh, quote about this, like a famous one. Yeah. I didn't find it. He was an interesting person. Yeah, I, it's, that's, the, that's, the, uh, that's the truth, though. I mean, that's why literature, for example... Yeah, literature, even from thousands of years ago, remains timeless because literature is about the human condition, human conflicts and emotions and relationships and all that. And it's exactly the same. The Torah was written 4,000 years ago. The stories resonate on a human level with us today because humanity really, human nature hasn't fundamentally changed and the conflicts are essentially the same. And our civilization, because of its great sophistication, has the ability to isolate itself from uh, objective reality, from the big picture a lot, but that's invited almost, and you can see that, you know, the people who are interested in pursuing the most extreme social progressive agenda and kind of disconnecting our sense of what a human being is from, uh, you know, from any mooring in objective reality are not interested in science, like they're not really, they're not interested in further, furthering the human intellectual enterprise, understanding the world or understanding science, understanding anything of that nature. They're just interested in the human condition and what they call human rights, which is the human right to be deluded, you know, and to follow a materialistic philosophy that leads them nowhere. That's, the, that's, the, that's what they call the pursuit of happiness, like meaning the freedom to be enslaved to a delusion as opposed to trying to educate people towards something higher, which used to be the idea of freedom back in the day. You found a quote? Yeah. The study of history is a powerful antidote to contemporary arrogance. It is humbling to discover how many of our good assumptions, which seem to us novel and plausible, have been tested before, not once, but many times, and in innumerable guises, and discovered to be, at great human cost, wholly false. Yeah, very good point. That is truth. Can I ask a basic, basic like take two question for the pasuk we just read? Mm-hmm. Why does the dagesh and the mem of arumim 
mean that it's a different word than the second time the word comes up? Functionally, what does that show you when you see the daget? Um, it's, it tells you what shoresh it is and what letters it's missing. What is the shoresh? Um, of Arum. What is the shoresh? Because then it says, V'anachashay Arum. And uh, Arumim, no, I assume that the, uh, what's the shoresh of Arum that we find for meaning naked? Do we know? But it does signify a different shoresh and a different, uh, uh, that the letters are, uh, the Dagesh the always signifies that something's missing. Isn't so, it usually the same letter again? Right, it's so either that there's a double letter missing or that there's some other feature missing that the mem absorbed. Why arumim as a dagesh when it's uh, when it means naked? I mean the technical dagesh. The, the technical the technical answer I'll tell you why is because whenever you have a is because um, it's because where because it follows the uh, right because of, of the tznuah that it follows, but that's not really gonna that doesn't tell us how we can tell that it's a different word meaning. We have to look at the construction of the, of the word arumim to figure out why that is in more detail. See, that's the thing. You could say the reason yeah. is because the u is... Right, the, the u is evolve. what causs it to become dagesh, but why? If it's to evolve, then, it's, then it loses the dagesh. But if it's under the letter, which it is, then it gains the dagesh. Right, right but why? So, but in the, this case, is yeah, it? Yeah, when the Bali Masora did that, they used those specific tamim because of the meaning. Meaning it didn't, right. it's not, the Tom isn't the reason. The Tom was... How they were the, megaled, the meaning. The reason. The, 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 the Gesh was a tool of Balei Masori used to be megaled, how they were reading it. How they were reading it, right. No? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but if we, if we look like the Radak, that's the type of thing the Radak or the Ibn Ezra would tell you exactly why there is a Dagesh there. So I don't look at the... We yeah, we would have to look. Sefer, like either, the, Sefer, either Sefer, in the Sefer Shoroshim or we'd have to look in the uh, Ibn Ezra. Because they would usually tell you why that is. Oh, you have? Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's see. So basically the answer is, according to the Academia de la Ha'ivrit, okay, that Arum means widely. Arum means naked. But a lot of words that switch from singular to plural that have that form of A-O, like all the colors, kachol is kechuli. Right, we don't say arumim, we say arumim. So it ends up being in the plural. So now the nachash is arum because it's a singular. He's arum, right? Wiley. Right, which means wily, but the arumim is actually a plural of arum. That's the reason. Which means maybe ah. So there you go. Oh, we learned something. That's good. Hey, no that. Okay, and so then Arumim later on also it says it's another form of Arumim. There must be a, a, a linguistic connection between the, the word widely and the word naked. I mean, I've heard so many people trying. I'm sure there, there might be, but who knows. Sometimes the Radak would just pay, say it's a different charge. It's, it, you know, it's, it's a diff, totally different meaning, same letters. And he doesn't, yeah, it doesn't bother in the Radak. No, there's no question that the Tawah is putting it here because it's trying to tell you that there's some connection between the Nachash and the people. And that is? Either that, like, definitely on the Mashal interpretation, if you're taking it in a, if you're taking the interpretation of some kind of a non-literal, so then the Nachash is actually a projection, it's just a personification of something within them. So 
it would be a hint, it would be dropping a hint to the reader that this Nachash is actually a component of the Adam and Chavan, not really a separate entity, because using the same word almost as an ironic twist mm-hmm. by using the same language in two different words, two different meanings, but pointing to the, you know, to, but such similar language, one after the other, kind of indicates that they're trying to express an identity between the two. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a play on words in order to highlight that there's something more than meets the eye here, that there's, a, there's an identity between the two. There's an identity, yeah. Yeah, I would say that that's, probably the, that's probably the meaning. And even if you go with the pshat, even if you go with the pshat that there's a snake talking, it's still, meaning the idea that the craftiness of the nachash and the, you know, ends up affecting and be, becoming internalized and become, you know, and, and, and transforming, changing Chavan, Adam and Chava. As a result, there's again, there's still an identity element there. There's the simplicity of Chavan Adam that they are naked, but they're not ashamed because they are not crafty. Craftiness is when you're using your intellect to pursue a material objective you're using an intellect to manipulate, to manipulate circumstances to pursue a selfish, selfish objective. That hasn't occurred to them yet. The Nachash is using speech and intellect in the story. This Nachash is, a, is a, uh, an, in, you know, an intellectual guy, a philosopher. Right? He's a, philosopher, he's a philosopher. So he, the philosophical Nachash, is using intellect to manipulate. He's doing exactly the opposite of Adam and Chava. Adam and Chava are tmimim. They're, you know, they, 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 they just, uh, they're naked, meaning they, they, what you see is what you get, right? It's the opposite of what the nachash is, right? Transparent. They're, they, they don't have any inner conflict because their intellect is guiding their body, not the other way around, right? Whereas the nachash is using intellect, whatever intellect he has, right? He's, he's university educated, right? And he, uh, he's, he's using his powers of persuasion to manipulate and so it's almost like a uh, mirror image of the two, right? One is the, the intellect guiding the body and therefore there is no conflict and no uh, dishonesty. It's pure, it's pure. There's a purity. And then you have the Nachash who's sneaky and insidious and he uses the mind to manipulate for uh, material gain, okay? Whatever his objective is in trying to bring about the do- downfall of man is never so clear in the text, except maybe he feels threatened, you know, there's the, you know, maybe he wants to, he wants to destroy them. Whatever, according to the Pshat, is the reason that the Nachash wants to destroy Adam and Chava, it's not so entirely clear, right? But the, perhaps because the idea of a creature that's governed by intellect but is living in accordance with God's will would be a, 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 a terrible nuisance to a creature that is, uh, has other uh, interests and objectives and, and also has intellect and wishes to, uh, you know, wishes to gain power or whatever it is in the literal reading of the story. Right. right? But in the, it's not even that important. What's important in the, uh, and, and that's why he's rendered powerless. In other words, because in, in the pshat meaning of the story, he has intellect, but he deliberately uses it in order to undermine God's design. And therefore he loses his power entirely, whereas Adam and Chava are in conflict. They, you know, so they, so therefore they don't completely lose, but they're kind of placed in a limbo situation where they have difficulties and obstacles, but they're not entirely made impotent as a result of the chet. Right? That's that's the pshat. In the metaphoric reading, 
Now, in the metaphoric reading, so the nachash and, and is, a, is a personification of the inclination of Adam to, again, reverse that balance and make the intellect a means to gratification and, and, and ego as opposed to the other way around. In the, in the literal, it's an actual being trying to accomplish that goal, right? But in both cases, it's basically a polar opposite or a mirror reflection of Adam and Chava's nature at that point. And that's why the language would be the same. I think it's a beautiful literary way of showing that there's a mirroring in the nachash of, the, of Adam and Chava. Can you explain why, because you touched on it yesterday, you were talking about like the, the midrash about the, midrash about the um, like, like the Satan or Samael is riding the, mm. the snake. The idea of why, why does he need to be riding the snake? Isn't the snake already the personification of the Satan or the The Rambam said that the Nachash is the imagination. Meaning fantasy. So the, there's two, that's what we were saying yesterday, that either the Nachash, either the, the imagination can either be governed by and driven by the, the desires of the person, the ta'avot of the person, in which case it becomes a great detriment to his, uh, his development because he, he's, he's in the grips of fantasies. Or the, the imagination can be an immense tool because basically he can envision... Uh, un, you know, we can envision all kinds of things that lead him to greater understanding. You know, that's the uh, that that's the beauty of the imagination. So, when the nachash is under the control, when the imagination is under the control of the person, it becomes a he harnesses the power of the imagination for good. When the nachash is under the control of the etzorah, then he fantasizes all kinds of things, and that's where avodah comes from, and that's where all the the all the fantasies of pleasure, fantasies of ego, every fantasy comes from the imagination that the Yetzirah is using because when the Yetzirah can, meaning you're des- you desire a certain thing and then you fantasize about how it would come to be and then you pursue that. And that's, that, that's the imagination. So that's why I'm saying it's riding, the Nachash is, is being ridden by the Yetzirah because it, in and of itself, it's not, uh, it's not the evil. The evil is... It's saying that Satan rides right. on the right. Nachash right. because meaning that the imagination is being driven by the, by the desires. So the imagination is like a, like a horse or an animal. It says it's like a gamal, actually, yeah. in the Midrash. If you can harness it, then it can take you places. Yeah. If not, it can trample you. Right, or it can, it can un- undermine you, yeah, because you'll start to fantasize. Fantasy can be dangerous, as we know. Fantasy yeah. can be, can be great and amazing, and fantasy can be destructive if the, if the imagination is an instrument. That's why it always says the Navi has to have a very powerful imagination, a very rich imagination, because that's where ideas come from. Einstein didn't talk till he was very, you know, many years, uh, three, four, five years old, something like that, because his imagination was extremely vivid. And he said, I never understood why people say you have to talk to think. You don't have to talk to think, I just imagine. Like I just imagine scenarios, and in the scenario, I see the idea. And that's, that's the, like, that's the, co- there were these NLP people, you know, these, uh, you know, NLP, the uh, neurolinguistic, neurolinguistic, ling- uh, neurolinguistic programming, it's like a, it's something that was really, really popular like decades ago. I don't know how popular it is now, but a lot of it's about becoming aware of the way you think. Becoming aware of the way we think, the way we process things, the different modalities in which we process things, and how we experience things. Becoming like very conscious of our experiences, especially in thought. And one of the things they did was they wrote, a, they had a series called, they have tons of books. Actually, it's kind of popular in Israel. I see the books still out now. You don't see them as popular in America now. 
They were for a time, like in the maybe 90s, 2000s. And basically, hmm? Is that Daniel Kahneman that the cognitive psychologist is kind of... I don't think it's him. I don't think he's in that. But it was like these guys that basically they they came up with this idea that people are not consciously aware of. And I think it's true of the way they think, of the way they communicate. People, let's say, will use the language of, do you see my idea? And another person will say, "I I hear what you're saying. Right? Like things like that's a tiny nuance. But being aware of how we think, how we process. When you look at something, what do you notice? What do you not notice? Why do you notice certain things and not others? What goes through your mind? Um, if you're good at something, a skilled person, an expert, you know, how do they experience that and why is the way that they're processing things different? They have, they was, it's pretty cool stuff. Cool. Yeah, but one of the things I have, they have books called The Strategies of Genius. And, um, and one of them, they have a bunch of different geniuses that they analyze their way of thinking based on their writings and what they describe to themselves. And then they have like a whole book devoted to Einstein, just Einstein and his way of thinking and, and uh, examining how he thought. And it's, it's actually really, really, really interesting. They, they actually have one fictional character. They do Sherlock Holmes. Because, you know, Sherlock Holmes actually talks a lot about his process to Watson in the, in the stores. So um, if you ever read Sherlock Holmes. So he... He talks about a lot of his process, like, oh, well, I noticed he had mud on this toe, so I realized he must be this professional, whatever, things like that that are so nuanced you never would notice in a billion years. But because he explains it, so they use the fictional Sherlock Holmes to say, well, you know, a person who really thought that way could actually really perceive those things. What is the way that he thinks? You know, how does he process? It's super interesting. That's actually what Andrew is mentalist. Hmm. And he said that a lot of what they do... They mirror, right? The psych, not, yeah, but not yeah. Just the psychics who are pretending to be real, but the mentalists who are admitting that to show, they're actually like reading little things. There's one guy, Darren Brown, who's mm-hmm. really good at this. He'll look at... He'll have a conversation with them within a minute. And this guy said the same thing. He's like, within a, you know, a minute, I know a lot about you. And it's just like, they understand looking at your fingernails, like if it's dirty, if, it's, if you have like you know, um, callous fingers, and what kind of shoes you're wearing. Right. So many, there are so many things that they pick up on. Body so, language, I'm yeah, sure. Body yeah. language, all of a sudden, it's like across the board accurate. It's like, yeah. it's interesting. When you speak right, so they, and so one of the things that NLP came into disrepute at a certain point, because the guys who were the pr- promoters of it or the, like the developers of it started using it for like insidious purposes. Like, oh, we can really use this so to... You know, for sales, we can really use this to manipulate people. We can really use this for all kinds of things. Not mentalist stuff necessarily, but they got into like stuff that was not so glad kosher. And I think that turned a lot of people off because it became like an industry of gaining power and manipulating other people instead of just being aware of yourself, which originally was more about helping people become aware of themselves and and of their environments and being able to communicate and observe better and stuff like that, which is really, really, really powerful and great. Um, in any case, that the idea of imagery is like a big thing in the Rambam, actually, and the role of imagery. And one of the things that I was saying, actually, when I met with uh, the guy that wrote the book, um, Shmuley Phillips, mm-hmm. they wrote uh, Jews, uh, and Jews and Reclaimed, right. So I was talking to him about that, you know, how in the... Um, how there's a reason why a lot of the most abstract divrei Torah and, and Torah learning is in like Nizikin and Nashim. And it's not in Bachot and Shabbat and things like that. Why? 
because it's easy to come up with abstract ideas and svarot and things like that in an area that's already very abstract and disconnected from your experience. Or about korbanot. Oh yeah, it's very easy to come up with theories of how the halacha works. Why? Because I don't have any intuition about like, what that actually needs to be like. But if you give me some abstract formula about tefillah, I'm going to say, that doesn't resonate with my actual experience of tefillah. That doesn't resonate with what is actually supposed to, what Shabbat is actually, you know, things that are related to experience, where I have experience and imagery and a sense intuitively of what makes sense, what resonates, what, you know, what is logical, what is, what is illuminating in that area. I'm not going to accept some abstract idea that sounds very, you know, that sounds very impressive, but is really just a technical kind of an explanation. Technical explanation doesn't work in, in tefillah. Technical explanation doesn't work. It needs to be like something deeper, right? More rooted in experience as opposed to areas like nizikim, property, ownership, relationship. These are already abstractions even in law. So it's easy to be very, very, um, uh, you know, to deal with them in abstraction and have pilpul and have all that in those realms. It's much harder in realms that are closer to the heart because you have intuition, you have experience, you have expectation for what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. The closer something is to your experience, the harder it is to give you a svara that's not, you know, not mikubala ladat, basically, you know? And so, that, and that's the, uh, that's the power of, of, of the imagination. But the truth is that even in areas like Nashim and Nizikin, if a person really reflects on their experience and has a richer experience, they'll also have a deeper intuition about what ideas make sense and don't make sense in those areas as well. And they might see uh, some svara that's very abstract and say, yeah, but that doesn't fit intuitively with what my sense is of what this is really about. You can't just give me a kind of abstract answer that doesn't jive with my experience of the reality of, of, of what's going on. And so um, that's why the imagination is important. It's important to focus on it and to build it and to, you know, that's what Tanakh is supposed to do to, to a great extent, to help how you. So, hmm? How so, how's the Tanakh supposed to help you? Because the reason why, like, yeshivish people veer away from Tanakh is because it's too concrete. It's about stories. It's about you have to to understand why David Melech did what he did. You have to identify with him. You have to go into your own experience. You have to feel what would I do in that position? What would I be feeling? What would I be thinking? How would I be acting? Would I act the same way that he did or differently? Why? So once you're getting into that realm of real experience, you're understanding what really the text is coming to illuminate. You're getting in touch with what. You know, you read about a relationship, you say, would I react that way? Would I not react that way? Why? Why not? What would be going through my mind? How would I really experience that? How would I, you know, how would that feel? And what would my response be? And when you reflect on it, now you're able to identify with the characters. And, and you know, if I lived in, a, if I had radical ideas that nobody around me believed, would I leave my house and everything that I owned and everything, go into a random desert and start screaming about it to people who are passing by in the street? Uh, probably not. Why not? You know, I'm just giving an example, but like there, there's so many examples of uh, in Tanakh stories, the way a story relates to is you identify with the characters and you have a certain intuition about what you would do or what should be done. And then either it contradicts it or it goes a little bit in a different direction and it makes you question and that's how it teaches you. So it, it's, re- it's in the realm of the imagination. And, um, 
or even Mishalim, even Mishlei, gives examples. You know, the, the fool does this, and the wise Like, yeah, why does a wise person do that? Why, why would a fool do that? Let me try to imagine being in that situation, what that would really mean. That's how you come, you use your imagination, and you, you flex your imagination in a good way, trying to clarify why you would or wouldn't do that. And then what happens is, the amazing thing about that kind of learning is that then when you see or experience those scenarios in real life, you have an insight into them that you didn't have before because you connected the idea to a real thing in your imaginative world. Even though it was in your imaginative world, it's based on your real experience. So let's say it's talking about the way that people deal with each other in a certain scenario, and you talked about it in Mishlei, and you reflected on it, and you reflected on what that scenario really would mean, and why a person would do that, or wouldn't do X, or would do Y, and then you're confronted with that exact example in real life. You don't have to open the Mishnah Brura to know what to do. You understand what I'm saying? It's that not a... you think is the reason why it's, it's kind of like they shy away from it in the yeshiva world? Because it's... Too, even Rav Chaim Brisker once said, the reason why the, the Olama Yeshiva doesn't learn the Tanakh is because it's too deep. They don't understand it. Wow. Right? But, but I think that that's, it's, that's sort of, a, in a way, an easy out. The answer is that because their Judaism is very abstract. The Judaism of Ashkenaz, the big difference, and I talked about it in that, that shiur of the Sephardic Judaism, you know, the, the Judaism of the future shiur, that, that Sephardic Judaism believes that Judaism, Judaism is supposed to be real and experienced. It's an experience of a, of a life lived according to wisdom. That's what it is. Judaism is supposed to be life lived in light of God's wisdom. That's what we say. That's what it is. Okay, if your Judaism is not that, it's not, I see a situation and my way of relating to that situation is illuminated by the wisdom of Torah, which of course is expressed in halacha, but it's not just a technical rule. I see in the circumstance, I, I have insight into the circumstance because of the halacha, and, I, and the way that I act according to halacha is not because it says it in the book, a technical formula. It's because I internalized a way of looking at it that's different because I studied the halakha and because I studied the Tanakh, but only a halakha that's rooted in Tanakh can do that because a halakha that's not rooted in Tanakh is just a bunch of rules. If it's rooted in an understanding of Tanakh and I see it as illuminating experience and then I experience life and those halakhic principles are able to guide me in my, in my function, my day-to-day function, so now I'm experiencing life differently. That's kind of like what Rabbi Salvechik talks about in Halachic Man, when he talks about how the Halachic Man sees the world differently, sees it through the categories of Halacha, and he experiences life differently, and he responds to life differently. That's kind of what he's pointing to, I think, when he talks about that. But it's, um, but, you know, I think the Rambam would even take it a step further than even, even Rabbi Salvechik would, because Rabbi Salvechik still had the idea that ultimately Halacha is an abstract system that operates in its own orbit, whereas the Rambam and the Ralbag and those who were more um, philosophically inclined of the classical philosophy believe that ultimately for principles to be real to us and to illuminate our experience of the world, they have to be connected to our experience of the world. They can't just be rules that I found in the Mishnah Bura. And that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the difference between what I, what I often quote in my Sephardic lecture is, Ashkenazim, it was something that, was, that somebody's mother or grandmother told them, and he told me, he's like, I think it was his mother, he said, my mother told me, uh, Ashkenazim are religious on purpose. Sfaradim are religious by nature. 
Now, even though there's, there's plus and minus, you could say to both, because the Sephardim maybe don't reflect enough and they don't learn enough and they just go by the tradition that comes naturally to them, the natural spirituality that they have. And maybe the Ashkenazim uh, have, a, have a, pro, a positive because they study and they learn because they are more by the book. But this, the idea is that the Sephardic way is that it, the principles are ultimately internalized in the person. But that can only happen if the Judaism relates to experience. If it's just a bunch of abstract rules that you memorize, even if you study them and memorize them, they're still abstract rules. Uh, and as the example that uh, my, my teacher, Rabbi Sachs, always quoted this, this example from Bruce Lee, that he said, when I was younger, a punch was just a punch. I would just punch however. He's like, then a punch became an exact formula. You have to punch exactly like this, exactly this trajectory, exactly this way. It became very formal. He said, but eventually a punch became a punch again. Meaning it just became, right, after you internalize it, it's just the way that you punch. It's not a, it's not a, a technical formula that you're, that you're following. It's just the way that you do it. It's the effective way to do it. You've, you've, you've learned a different way to relate to it. The kids also learn to experience so much better. Like, I was teaching my kids more about That's why people like stories. And I didn't understand. But mm-hmm. you get onto the floor and you dig a glue. You do the it, floor, yeah. You put a seed in the floor. Of course. And I'm like, they understand what... Yeah, Al-Farabi, the philosopher, says that that's what they used to do. They used to take them into the real... Engage with real stuff when they talked about ideas. Not just in the abstract. So they would see it and they would perceive it and they were engaging the senses and it wasn't just an abstract discussion. And that's why people, you, you know, anybody giving a speech, they give a speech, people tune out, but the minute they tell a story or they give an example, okay? People automatically are involved because it, it's about experience. It's about something I can relate to. And, and, and it's about something that's gonna speak to my life because it's something mm-hmm. concrete and something that happened or whatever. People get interested in it. That's why. That's the part I walk out. Right. Well, that's because you're, because to you you're thinking it's fluff, but yeah. but it's but it's not always true because a lot of times the stories are there to illustrate an idea, and you see that even in the Mishnah, the Gemara, the way that they taught was through examples always, examples, 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 rather than just through abstraction. And Tanakh teaches through stories with a design in mind because mm-hmm. I can read because my five year old can read a story about Avraham Avinu and get something out of it. And my, my 20-year-old can read it, and, and I can read it, and, and somebody older than me and wiser than me. And so at every level, you read the same story, and, you're, and that's why literature is timeless, and people go back to the same literature again and again, good literature I'm talking about, that really has deep ideas and insight. And, and people are able to gain so much from it at different stages of their life, they gain something different. But the reason is, but like I'll find, I, I was really happy for the year that I spent homeschooling my kids because because of that year we read a ton of books together like I read a ton of books together with my kids that year that was like a big part of the, what I decided to do with them you know they had to do math and, and history and science and we did all that but they also like for English we just read books and discussed them and so to this day we have a frame of reference we're like oh this is like such and such from that book that we read or this is like this story or do you remember that and so you have like Literature and I picked for them like classic things, not Stuyot, because I wanted it to be something that we could refer back to in a meaningful way. And so then you have like a whole world of examples and of things that maybe as a kid they just 
thought it was interesting because it was kind of weird or cool or whatever. Now when they reflect on it at an older age, they can see a deeper insight into life and some, some literature provides you with. And, I, you know, and that's why literature is so powerful. And the, the, the foundation of, of, of all of Torah is Tanakh. It's literature first before abstraction, for sure. And everything is, is taught first in that form. Yeah, I think we should probably end because we have to have things to do tomorrow. Tomorrow also, or?